0: the following is sponsored by divine providence new from pnr publishing reformed theology for real life visit prpbooks.com
1: this is theology on the go a brief interview about an eternal truth
2: and for zwingli there is no question that that creative god is a good god and that is that all creation including the creation of humanity is good
1: hello and welcome to theology on the go i'm jonathan master joined as always by my friend and co-host james dolezal james how are you today i'm doing well looking forward to our conversation yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it too. Uh, we have as our guest today, we're delighted to welcome as our guest today, Professor Bruce Gordon. He is the Titus Street Professor of Ecclesiastical History at Yale University. He's he's written on a number of subjects. We've had him on in the past, but today he's here to discuss with us uh, a relatively new book within the last year or so on Ulrich Zwingli called God's Armed Prophet Zwingli. And so uh. Professor Gordon, thanks for joining us today. A great pleasure to be with you again. I'm delighted to do this. Well, we're delighted to have you. And I wanted to start with something that you say in the introduction, which is it was it was an arresting phrase. And I wondered if you could expand upon it just to lead us into the significance of Zwingli. You said in order to understand Zwingli, we must Begin with his God. So you you situate Zwingli in terms of his understanding of who God is. Why why is this the starting point from which we need to begin? You know, in order to access who Zwingli is.
2: Yeah, I think it's absolutely true. And the reason I I made that point was really because that's where Zwingli begins he begins in in his work with who God is. He's not interested, although he has a very strong medieval theological background, he's not interested in the medieval questions of God's essence or or relationship between being and essence and all the sort of scholastic questions with which he was deeply familiar from his studies in, in Basel. Zwingli begins with the God who, reveals himself primarily in Scripture, but also, very importantly, in creation. And for Zwingli, there is no question that that creative God is a good God. And that is that all creation, including the creation of humanity, is good, and that humanity is created for goodness, and therefore, that is the beginning point of this, that, that for Zwingli, there is this strong sense that, that created order and, and that humans place within this is the work of a God who is not remote, but who rules through creation in a providential way. And one of the central parts of Zwingli's theology is his heavy emphasis on God's providence. Zwingli is very aware of the difficultness of life in creation for humanity, but there is throughout his writings, a strong optimism that all will work for good. And that's why he characterizes quite in contrast to some of the other reformers, particularly of the reformed tradition, he has a strong emphasis on uh, joy as the primary experience of the Christian life. And unlike some of the other reformers, we could think of of Calvin, he he has, of course, a doctrine of election, but he's extraordinarily optimistic about it. And another aspect of it, for which he was attacked by Luther and others, is that they felt that he did not actually have a robust doctrine of original sin; that his own notion of sin was probably more in the direction of Erasmus and had a slightly more positive view of of human nature. And this can tie into questions we could talk about his relationship to antiquity and the great figures of antiquity, about whom he was quite he was quite positive. So there's there is a kind of um, optimism in Zwingli that for him flows from this deep conviction that God is good, God is goodness Himself, and that the creative act of the creative action is an expression of that goodness. I wonder if you could situate Zwingli for us relative to other
3: major reformers, probably with whom uh, listeners are more familiar. You you mentioned early in your volume that sometimes Zwingli is unfortunately considered as the lesser man than Luther, um, and as maybe nothing more than a forerunner of Calvin. And while I wonder if you could dispel a little bit of that myth for us, it's, where does Zwingli fit in the sort of Protestant Reformation effort? Um, And then maybe say something as to what kind of man he was. We think of the temperament of Luther and Calvin as being very different in one respect. And yet, as you mentioned, they both grew old and died and died in their sleep. um, And not so was Zwingli. So maybe situate him vis-a-vis the other major reformers and then maybe say
2: something a little bit about temperament for us. Sure, sure, sure. Um, Of course, one of the most... Dramatic elements of Zwingli's life is that what begins really around 1525, 1526, his bitter uh, disagreement with Luther over the Lord's Supper. And that, of course, has resulted in a kind of unfortunate uh, dichotomy that Luther believed in the kind of, to a certain degree, in the physical presence of Christ in the bread and the wine, and that Zwingli had what gets characterized almost for eternity as a bare memorialism. This is um, perhaps a, a subject for another conversation, but it's 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 a reductionism that simply doesn't reflect what happened. Zwingli was uh, always clear that Luther was the great man of the Reformation. He writes explicitly that he would not compare himself to this A great prophetic figure. On the other hand, he had a considerable distance from Luther, and I think quite rightly, that he came out of a very different context, that he arrived at the gospel through a very different route. He has a conversion experience in 1516, which predates, of course, the 1517 events of the 95 Theses, Swingley has his own roots. He certainly reads Luther at an early stage, but he has his own route to where he becomes as a reformer. Here we have to mention the extraordinary influence on him of Erasmus. And through Erasmus, one aspect of it is not just the humanism, the study of antiquity, but the influence, for instance, of the philosophy of Plato, which deeply informs uh, Zwingli's uh, thinking about the whole nature of memory as crucial part of what his understanding of, of the, the Eucharist, which is an, you know, we talk about the bare memorialism, that completely underdoes what Zwingli understood memory to be. That's perhaps something we can talk about. But what I would say about Luther and Zwingli is two, two things. One is they come out of very different intellectual, theological, uh, cultural backgrounds. They were never going to look at things in the same way. They were two very different, perspectives on on the Reformation. Their characters were such, because the bitterness of the controversy was such that they were never really going to reconcile. And here one one has to speak primarily about Luther, who regarded Zwingli as a heretic. He regarded Zwingli as a follower of his arch enemy, Karlstadt. Uh, Luther had no interest in reconciling with Zwingli. Zwingli did have more of an interest in in finding a way with with Luther. But, you know, there was never a golden age of unity of the Reformation. And these two just represented two paths that were not going to be reconcilable. Even, Even when they met together, that became quite clear. With Calvin, here there's a kind of secret story in that Calvin himself always maintained that he didn't read Zwingli. And he did that for good reasons. Zwingli was such an extraordinarily controversial figure. He was hated by the Lutherans. He was hated by Luther. Luther declared that Zwingli could not be saved that he'd gone to hell. Um, there was there was the word Zwingli was too controversial. For Calvin to use, because Calvin's great hope was that he was the person who could bring together the Reformed and the Lutherans. He thought, as this Frenchman who who was sympathetic to both sides, it was it would fall to him to bring the visible church to do uh, together. But to do that, he had to avoid ever saying the name Zwingli because it was too incendiary. So, but that on the one hand is the relationship between Zwingli and Calvin. But the other one, which often goes without being noticed, is that Zwingli isn't just simply an opening act for Calvin. His deepest theological positions, whether you think of covenantal theology, whether you think of the the theology of the sacraments, whether you think about Zwingli's view of the church, whether you think about issues of infant baptism, and so many of the arguments that you find in Calvin quite simply are there in Zwingli. That the, and it's it's not that you can say that it's direct influence on Calvin, because there were many other figures involved, including Martin Buzer and others. But Zwingli really gives shape to what becomes the reformed tradition. And Calvin inherits that. And you can say that Calvin develops it in new directions and refines it. He does, this is not to diminish Calvin's role, but he is building on something that has come to him as a second generation reformer. There are other people involved. There are Melanchthon, there's Echolampadius, there's others. But Zwingli has created this version of Christianity which is uh, inherited. And it's not just a kind of... The overture to Calvin, it feeds directly into what will develop later during the 16th century as the fuller version of the Reformed tradition. So Zwingli so isn't just a kind of forerunner, this is the term that often gets used. I mean, forerunners are people who kind of indicate something that might come later. He's actually a founder of it. And that's what I want, to, I want to argue. And it's not simply because I think you know we need to, to recover this figure simply because he's been ignored. I fully believe that if you read through his work, here are the foundations of what becomes the Reformed tradition. Calvin inherits that. He develops it in new directions and cultivates it. But he receives this tradition.
1: Professor Gordon, the, the Anabaptist movement... Are- arises in the context of Zwingli's ministry, or at least part of, parts of it arise in the context of Zwingli's ministry. Could you, could you comment a little bit on his relationship with those early Anabaptists? One of the criticisms that's often leveled against Zwingli from the perspective of the, the 21st century is the way in which he treated these Anabaptists um, in the city. And you, and you deal with that in the book, There were a lot of things going on there, not least their relationship to the civil government and his understanding of the importance of the civil government. But I wonder if you could give a little a little texture explanation of that relationship.
2: Yeah, I think one word that comes to mind immediately in thinking of this story is really of great personal tragedy. The those who became the leaders of the Anabaptist movement, and of course, Anabaptist is a pejorative term that that gets put on these people. They were, they were friends. They were uh, completely close to Zwingli because they had been drawn to his preaching. They had been drawn to reading circles in the city where they read scripture together, they prayed together, they sang together. This was a, a circle of friends, Conrad Grebel and others, who who were committed to what this preacher was saying. It starts to depart, as the story is 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 well known, because Swingley in the end realizes that their reform movement really will only have a chance if it is connected to the political authorities. And that's not to say that it was purely a cynical move. Swingley came to an understanding of the church in which the political community, the the the, the whole of the external body of the state. Is also the church. This is this is his his great discovery in beginning of fifteen twenty three when he holds the first disputation that the visible body of the community is the church, and of course that includes both believers and non believers. That that it will fall to God at the last days to separate the believers and the unbelievers, but in this world they live together as an expression of the visible church. And therefore, political authority is not separate from the church, but is an integral part of it, and Swingley thinks, of course, in the Old Testament model of the prophet and the king together. The prophet rebuking the king, but the king retaining the power of the sword. So he, he has this uh, Israelite model of this community which he sees as being uh, replicated. So it's not just a power game in which he thinks cynically that, you know, by enlisting the magistrates he'll be able to push through his reform. There's an element of that, of course, but there is also a belief, a, a vision of the community as a mixed body. This uh, causes serious difficulties because his friends, believing that they are following on what Zwingli's first principles were, said that, no, this couldn't happen, that the church must be a purified body of believers, and therefore must remove itself from all that is that is stained by the world. And above all, that would be the question of political authority, but it would extend to questions such as military service. Uh, it would extend to questions to paying the tithe, which. Which is of course that people have to surrender in a kind of feudal way to pay both the church and and the civil government from the goods of their of of their labors. So this this vision that emerges very early on, this is again slightly simple, simplified version of it, that of a of a different vision of what the church should look like. Now it's hard for us to to understand because it seems brutal and 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 really intolerant. But what you have in these early years of 1523, 24, 25 when nobody knows where this is actually going. You know, we we often look at these stories and see and and map out the various stages of evolution. But in 1523, 1524, 1525 before you have the break with um, final break with Rome and the establishment of what we could call a reformed church. Nobody knew exactly where this was going, but you have the emergence of different visions of reform And that Zwingli, one of the points I want to make in the book, is that Zwingli has a powerful sense of what the Christian community should be, but he's not alone. There are others who are coming up with different versions of them. The problem is, of course, in the early modern world, you can't have multiple versions of the truth. The truth is indivisible, and the truth is based on on the word of God. So Zwingli quickly comes to the conclusion alongside the magistrates, that the view of a separate church, think of the Donatists and Augustine, is subversive and is undermining the possibility of a Christian community. Therefore, it needs to be excised, it needs to be removed, which has the terribly unfortunate consequence that a church that has emerged as the church of the freedom of the conscience, the freedom of the Christian, and the adherence to the word, Becomes by 1527 a church that's putting people to death or driving them out of the city. So the Reformation, in some ways, starts to eat its own first principles, which is, you know, one of the one of the great tragedies of of the 1520s in which Zwingli is evolved. And of course, the central question is this: is that these people say you taught us that Scripture alone, but we look at Scripture and we find no reference to infant baptism. Here is a crucial part of the church that has no foundation in Scripture, and Zwingli then has, is forced on the back foot, and come begins to develop his his theology of the covenant, which part of which is to connect infant baptism with circumcision of the Old Testament, which is rejected by these these people. So. Uh, It brings me back to this point. There was never a golden age in which everybody believed the same thing. Right from the beginning, you have contesting visions of reform, which are inspired by Zwingli, but very quickly go in in different directions. Um, So... And, and then it becomes extremely bitter. And one has to say here Zwingli became an extremely unpleasant figure towards the Anabaptists. He preached brutally against them. He wrote works in which he you know, impugned their sexual morality. He, he attacks them as if they're sort of dogs. Um, there's some very ugly texts from Zwingli about these people who had once been his friends. It's one of the great tragedies of the Reformation in yet another way in which the Reformation split very early on, just as it would do. So Zwingli at one point, of course, is facing the split with Luther. He's he's facing the split with the Anabaptists and he breaks with his own great mentor, Erasmus. So this is a story of fragmentation. I wonder if you could say a few things about the appropriation
3: of his legacy and how we should appropriate it. I think in the reform tradition, you're right. He normally is the, the guy who has the memorialist view of the supper or was, you know, doing something that was instituting something like a regulative principle of worship in uh, in Zurich, but uh, in terms of dogma and beyond that, not terribly much interest, but what about, and I found this an interesting aspect of your book. What about even the modern perhaps secular Swiss appropriation of Zwingli. Um, there's something about him that, that's it's st- that's inspiring as almost a nationalist style, a Swiss, very Swiss reformer. But uh, is that appropriate, is the kind of secular appropriation of him legitimate or is there a theological dimension that is almost in a certain sense um, uh, dissolved in that kind of, appropriating him as a reformer, but not of a particular
2: kind. Yeah, yeah. this is, it's, I, this is something that fascinates me. I did a, a project on this a few years ago about the afterlife of Calvin's institutes. And it was extraordinary to me to see how the institutes could be read and appropriated in so many different ways. And often that meant, as often is the fate of books, that parts of it were read and parts of it were ignored. So that Calvin in the, in the 19th century could be a figure of liberal theology for many people. And the reason for that is that, you know, if you look in the 19th century with the tumultuous events, with the rise of secularism, the decline of the church, the threats of of biblical uh, scholarship that was undermining the bible the rise of science the church is under enormous pressure and that a lot of the principles of the reformation were being quite openly rejected and so at the same time there was a powerful sense that these were these protestant communities like the catholics with their with their own vatican council one or the high church movements in in the Church of England and in the Anglican tradition, there was a powerful sense of trying to reconnect with your origins, yet you had to reappropriate those origins to make sense of your own story. So, it becomes a kind of creative act of historical uh, reconstruction and this is what fascinated me with 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 zwingli that in the political world of the 19th century he could be he be, he was brought back as a great patriot as a and and that was you know amongst the swiss but in the wider protestant world he uh, as opposed to luther was seen as the great supporter of democracy a kind of democratic uh, form of of, of Protestantism. Philip Schaff, one of the great the, uh, historians of, you know, one of the founders of church history in America, although he was by birth Swiss, speaks of Zwingli as the origins of liberal theology because of that kind of positive views towards election and providence and, and God that I spoke about at the beginning. So here we have Zwingli. Uh, who is the liberal Zwingli, which becomes a very powerful movement right through into the 20th century. Uh, Karl Barth, Uh, in a way, obviously rejects that view of of Swingley, but there's a strong sense that, as opposed to Luther and Calvin, Swingley was a much more liberal theologian who could be reclaimed by the growth of liberal theology in the 19th and 20th century. I end the book by asking the question, how in modern days, because in 2019, there was this anniversary of of Swingley um, in the city of Zurich, which is a highly secular place, as most European cities are, with very low church attendance, and in fact now with a much stronger, uh, larger Catholic population than Reformed, uh, and were, like in other places, more uh, Muslims often being observant than, than, than Christians. So I ask the question, how does a modern uh, secular society, remember a profoundly religious event from f- 500 years ago. So I explored this. And so there you get a Zwingli who's seen as the author of Social Reform. Uh, Someone who dedicated himself to the care of the poor, who took a liberal attitude towards uh, many aspects of of society, uh, who argued for freedom of conscience. And even in a film that's made about his life, he becomes a kind of advocate of religious toleration. So this, this reworked historical figure to suit the tastes of contemporary society, to make him acceptable, my argument is it's always been that way. Uh, and of course, one of the great, I have talked about this, but one of the great problems for this is that unlike Luther and Zwingli, as you say, who died in their beds, he died on a battlefield. And nobody, and that goes back to one of the problems with why his legacy is so difficult. Nobody knows what to make of the fact that this man went onto a battlefield, was killed, his body uh, dismembered and burnt, and that he was never given a proper uh, funeral. So his end is is has made him uh, an extraordinary uh, difficulty for the Protestant t- tradition to make sense of him. It's much easier to make sense of of Calvin and others. So so let's skip over the embarrassing bit. But that his story. Um, if you look at his own story, uh, moves into very different ways in, in, in how his memory was cultivated over the next 500 years. And as I say, um, if you read the literature put out by the city of Zurich, he is a, he is a kind of Weberian forerunner of capitalism. He's, he's extraordinary number of things that uh, that, uh, that modern society finds acceptable. And those bits which are less acceptable, think of doctrine of election or providence, they simply are left to the side. Well, we're grateful
3: for the acceptable and unacceptable Zwingli uh, that you've presented in this volume and really thankful for the time you took with us today. No, it's a great pleasure to talk
2: to you. Thank you for inviting me.
1: Well, James, I'm am I'm a a an unapologetic fan of good biographies, and I usually find that there are one or two a year, sometimes just one that, that really grab me and I, and, and, and go beyond being interesting to just being, you know, fascinating, great, great books. And, and this is in that category for me. I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I learned a tremendous amount, not just about specific details of Zwingli's life, but about putting putting all the pieces together and and seeing them in light of the broader context. So um I I would commend this. I I don't know that this will make it into the recording but while we were kind of talking um off to the side with uh with Bruce Gordon he mentioned that he in one week received an email from a, a janitor in Iowa who had read the book and had questions about Zwingli and an economics professor at Harvard who had other questions about Zwingli, and I think it speaks to the 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 reach of the book and the um, accessibility, because he's such a, a fine writer.
3: Acknowledging it as cliche, this is definitely a page turner, and some of that is just a testament to the, the skill of its author. Uh, he's he has a fascinating subject and an, an enigmatic subject to deal with in zwingli um one who is one who is uh you know as he said you know just both the um acceptable and unacceptable zwingli and that he wants to give us as really a historian uh zwingli as he was but more than that it it is it is in fact so so well written and so compelling and it brings you into uh, the world of the early 16th century uh, Zurich and, and to the expectations of Zwingli as, as different somewhat than Calvin's uh, particular. I mean, both of them have a view of the magistrate. They are magisterial reformers, but the, the understanding of how government uh, is to relate to the church and how that accounts for so much of uh, Zwingli's movements, even to his very last one on the battlefield is, Really, a, a fascinating tale to tell and one that I think, I think readers will just find, they will find the whole telling of it uh, really compelling. Um, I, I would dare someone to try to quit reading the book uh, after reading just the introduction.
1: Yeah, it is a page turner, as you said. And if any of our listeners are interested in um entering with the possibility, we have a few copies to give away with the possibility of winning one of those copies. You can do that at Place for Truth. There's a theology on the go link there that'll give you that option. But if you if you don't win a, one of our copies of the book, I, I'd commend it to you. It's entitled Zwingli, God's Armed Prophet, and it's by Bruce Gordon, our guest today. We're we're grateful for you uh in and you're listening to Theology on the Go, if there are people that you know of who might be helped by this podcast, please pass it along. If you're able to review the podcast or give us a a rating on iTunes or elsewhere, that helps us spread the word. And and if you're able to donate, we couldn't do this without the uh, generous donations of listeners like you. And so you can do that at Alliancenet.org. There's a donate button there, that that you can use to easily uh, make a donation. And thanks, as always, for listening to Theology on the Go. A brief interview about an eternal truth.
0: Piar Publishing presents another classic work in modern English for 21st century readers. Rigorous, practical, and deeply reverent, divine providence speaks to the struggles of believers today as it tackles difficult questions with biblical truth. Does God govern the world, and how? Is He the author of sin? Why do good people suffer while bad people thrive? In this masterful discourse, Puritan theologian Stephen Charnock arms us to trust in the One who works all things for His glory and the good of the Church. This new edition introduces contemporary Christians to one of the greatest Puritan thinkers and the beauty of divine providence, the comforting truth that God is righteous, wise, and good, and nothing takes place that is not in His will. Include study questions for discussion. Divine Providence from PNR Publishing. Reformed theology for real life. Visit prpbooks.com.